If you're new here to City Church, again, we want to welcome you and uh, also want to welcome those who are listening to, uh, to our podcast of our service this morning. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we are starting, uh, actually, we started a new series last week called Time uh, for a Change. And what we're talking about is how to change the gospel way. Uh, most of us, if we were very honest with ourselves, in fact, all of us, if we were honest with ourselves, have things that we want to change about ourselves. And some of us have had more or less success with that as uh, time, as the years have gone by. We're talking about how to change. I uh, want you to know when you leave uh, this series how to change the gospel way. This is a very momentous subject. It really is. It's very important. Uh, when you stop and think about it, uh, many people devote their entire professions to this issue of how to change. Uh, people in the educational system, uh, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, urban planners, uh, most sociologists, government officials. What are they out to do? Well, they're out to help people uh, change. They devote their entire careers to that subject. And those of you who are in those professions, and I know that we have people in our uh, church that are in those professions, you realize how much we need to know uh, how people change. Because I'll be honest with you, most people really don't know how people change. This is a very important subject. And the passage that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 4 speaks to this issue very directly, how to change, how to change the gospel way. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and I will meet you there uh, at Ephesians chapter 4 in just a minute. I, I just want to do a quick review, though, from last week as you're turning to Ephesians 4. Just a quick review. Last week, we saw that in these verses, uh, verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, is giving us a before and after picture of a person who has responded to the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ. In verses 17 through 19, uh, we get the before picture. Before we respond to Christ, Paul says there is a futility that drives us. And in order to ease that sense of futility about life, we tend to give ourselves the, over to things that we have learned in our culture uh, that our culture says will give our lives meaning. But we find them uh, unsatisfying. Uh, in fact, the language that Paul uses is the language of addiction. He says, he says at the end of that little section in verses 17 through 19, he says it leaves you with a continual lust for more. That's addiction that he's talking about. And he's right. When do you ever get to a point that, you've said, that you can say, I've had enough success. Uh, I've made enough uh, money. I've had enough approval from the people that matter to me. Uh, when could you ever say, I'm, I'm beautiful enough. I don't need to be more beautiful. When could a person ever say that? Paul says that there's this sense of futility, and we try to ease that by giving ourselves over to things that the culture says will give our lives meaning with a continual lust for more. He then says in verses 20 to 21, the only way to get past this sense of futility is by hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 22 Paul comes along and he gives us this after picture of a person who's responded to the gospel. And he says, here now is how you can begin to experience the kind of radical substantive change that the gospel is designed to bring. And we're going to start reading uh, again from verse 22. I know we read these verses last week, but let's read verses 22 through 24 is where Paul gives us the model, the gospel model for change. He says in verse 22, chapter 4, you were taught... With regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds, in verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that the gospel method of change has two parts, and then there's a bridge between the two parts. Uh, the first part is putting off the old self, and then he says, he says the other part is putting on the new self, and then the bridge between those is called uh, being made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, what I want to do this morning is I'm just going to give you an overview of those three parts, and then in the weeks to come, we're going to look at each one of those parts uh, individually and in detail. Here's the first point. I want to make three points today uh, by way of just overview on these, uh, on these parts to change. The first is this, and it's just a, I'm quickly revisiting something that, uh, I, that we pointed out last week. Here it is. The gospel way of change happens through your identity. Okay, that's where change happens. It happens through your identity. Remember we said last week that when Paul refers to, when he says, he says, put off the old self and he says, put on the new self. What he's talking about here is the language of identity. Now, over the course of your life, prior to coming to know Jesus Christ, you patched up for yourself an identity that causes you to behave in the way that you behave. You see yourself in a certain way. And you value certain things that people, that the culture told you to value. And you behave according to those things that you value in the way that you see yourself. The gospel recognizes that the only way to change a person, really, is not by targeting specific behaviors, little things. The gospel recognizes that the only way to change a person is through their identity. And so at the moment that you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you immediately change. There is an immediate change at the core of your being that enables you to reorient your life around Jesus Christ. Now, that change is instantaneous, and yet at the same time, it takes a lifetime to learn how to live out that new identity. Now, I have a great illustration for how, uh, for, for, uh, how that takes place and for how there is this immediate change, but then it takes the rest of your life to live it out. I have a great illustration for that, but I don't have time to go into it. And the sad thing is, is that your life would have been completely and totally changed if I had the time to share that with you, but I don't, so I'm sorry. We're moving on to the second point. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. Putting off your old identity. Okay, remember part of it is putting off your old self, and then part of it is putting off putting on the new self. Okay. Putting off the old identity or the old self cannot be separated from putting on the new self or the new identity. You cannot separate these two things. Paul includes them all in this gospel method of change. You can't separate them. Now, I want to make sure you understand first what Paul means when he says putting off the old self and put on the new self. He's saying that when you catch yourself living out of that old identity and behaving in a way that's characteristic of that, he's saying that in order to put off the old self, what you do is that you make a conscious decision to renounce that old identity and then remind yourself of the new identity that you have as a follower of Christ. Okay, So you're going to you catch yourself, you're going to renounce one, and you're going to remind yourself of the new identity. Now, I want you to notice that you can't put off without putting on. And the opposite is true as well. You can't put on without 
putting off. Those two have to be joined together. You can't do one without the other. Why is that? Two reasons. The first is that if you separate putting, on, uh, putting off and putting on, if you separate these two things, you will either become a legalist or a hypocrite if you separate those two things. Now, let me explain. There are churches, maybe some of you guys have been a part of these churches, that put all of their emphasis on putting off. These are the churches that are always saying, uh, don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, they're constantly saying, just stop it. Uh, just say no. And there's a lot of appealing to the willpower. You know, will it? Just stop. Just don't do it. Quit. And those churches are very legalistic because all they're doing is appealing to the putting off. They're not talking about the putting on. Now, on the other hand, there are churches that put all of their emphasis on putting on. And they want to get you to be a good person without ever acknowledging that there is an old part of you that is a sinner. And that creates hypocrisy. You see, neither the legalist nor the hypocrite represent the kind of substantive change that the gospel wants to make in your life. So you can't separate them or you become a legalist or a hypocrite. And that's not the kind of change the gospel wants. Now, the second reason that you can't separate them, and and this one may seem very obvious, but I, I promise you when I get to talking about it, you'll understand that it's not as obvious as it may seem, that change is always two factored. Change is always two factored. This is why you can't separate these things. Because you can't turn, you can't turn away from something without turning toward uh, something else. Why? Right? I mean, this is, think about it. This is why recidivism rates in prison are so high. Because unless someone like Pat Townsend comes along and helps people learn how to live a new life, as she said just a moment ago, what they do is they just go back into their old lives and in their old culture and they make the same mistakes that they made before and they end up in the same place. They end up back in prison. That's why recidivism rates are so high. Because change is two-factored. You can't turn away from something without turning towards something else. And as obvious as that seems, every other effort to change people, Every secular way that people try to change people, every religious way that people try to change people, uh, they forget this very basic truth that you can't separate putting off from putting on. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to give you an example here. When is a thief, I'm going to ask you this question, when is a thief no longer a thief? Now, I'm going to bet you I will bet you that I caught most of you dead to rights in this. Because most of you have been indoctrinated in a legalistic distortion of the gospel that puts all of its emphasis on putting off the old self. I will bet you, I'd be willing to bet you, that most of you thought to yourself, well, a thief is no longer a thief when he or she stops stealing. And if that's what you said, I have got you right in my crosshairs right now. Because you think that the gospel is all about putting off, and you think holiness is just the absence of sin. But that is not what this passage teaches. In uh, verses uh, 25 and following, Paul does something interesting. He gives us some case studies, 
so that we can see how this putting off, putting on thing works. And I want you to look down, if you would, for just a moment. I want you to look at uh, verse 28. Verse 28. Paul is talking about this very issue. He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So let me ask you that question again. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's not just, Paul says it's not just when they stop stealing. That's just, that's just putting off. That's not the kind of radical substantive change that the gospel is after. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't just say, let him who steals stop stealing. He says, he says but, but you, okay, so if you're going to put off stealing, you, you've got to have a put on to take the place of what you put off or you don't change. To put off stealing, he says, did you notice? To put off stealing, you have to put on generosity. He says you have to have, you have to, you have to, okay, you turn away from stealing. You, you put off the identity that says I'm a thief and you put on a new identity that says I've got this satisfaction that comes from working. But beyond that, to know what it's like to take your resources and use them to make a difference in someone else's life. And to change people with your resources and to minister to people and to help them. In other words, to be generous, uh, he says. A thief is no longer a thief, not just when they stop stealing. You know what a thief is? You know what a, you know what a person is, uh, a thief who stops uh, stealing is? They're just a thief between jobs. That's, that's what a thief who stops stealing is, just a thief between jobs. Because that never works. That never works. You stop being a thief... Paul says, when you put on uh, generosity. Now see, that's, that's the gospel method of change. That's the kind of radical change that the gospel is after, that you could put off something, but that you put on this whole new identity as a Christ follower that is oriented and reoriented around Jesus Christ. Now I want to take a moment and I want to drive this home. Because there is a distortion of the gospel that is very prevalent in conservative evangelicalism. And what, you know, what's funny to me is that conservative evangelicals are always up in the face of liberal uh, churches about their doctrinal errors. But believe me, the conservative evangelical church has doctrinal errors too. And this is one of them. I'll bet some of you guys, I'll bet some of you are going to recognize it because some of you are a product of it. There is an approach to holiness that says... We're just going to keep you away from any unholy influence at all. We're going to keep you away from it. In other words, we're not going to put something in its place, but just negatively, we're going to just keep you away from that kind of influence. And over 23 years as a pastor, I want to tell you, I have met a lot of you who grew up in that kind of an environment. And by the time I meet you, you are often what I would call a de-churched person. Some people would call you a recovering Christian. You were raised in a situation with only put-offs, but no put-on. 
You're like a boy. You're, you know the story? You remember the story about the boy uh, in a bubble? You know, the bubble boy? You, you were like a boy or a girl in, in a bubble. You were told, don't do these things, but there was nothing put in its place to put on. And so you lived a sheltered life. And then you got on your own and you went to college or you got a job or whatever it was and you descended into darkness because you had absolutely no resistance to the depravity that college or life or whatever outside the shelter offered because there was nothing positive in there. You were not told to put on anything, just, just told to put stuff off. And so because of that, you just descended into darkness for a long time. And then what happens is that at some point you, you surface and you visit a church like City Church. And you start to ask questions. And, and you're like, I, I, am, I, am I a Christian or not? I mean, I, I was raised conservatively, but look at all these things I did. And, and the last eight years, I've, I've hardly set foot in the door of a church. And you know, you'll say to me something like this. You'll say, you have no idea what I've been doing. And I'm like, inside, I'm thinking, I have a great idea about what you've been doing because you're not the first person I've met like this. But you think nobody has any idea, you know, the kind of stuff you've been doing. And and you're like, I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't even know if there is a God. And you ask yourself sometimes, am I a Christian? Am I even a Christian uh, or not? And folks, I want to tell you something. Um, This is why the first core value of City Church is listed in your program. If you're new here, you could just open your program and you'll see we've got our core values listed. The very first core value of City Church listed in that program is the gospel. Um, Do you understand that most people don't reject Christ because they're really intellectually thinking through the gospel? Most people reject Christ because they're reacting to what they think they know the gospel is, which is usually very wrong. We have to make sure as a church that we get the gospel right. We don't want to send people off who've been putting off without putting on their new identity in Christ. But also, we don't want to... When those people, when those de-churched people come back and they come back to church, we want to make sure that we're not perpetuating the same distortions of the gospel that drove them away in the first place. we got to make sure that we're teaching the beauty and the balance and the sophistication and the superiority of the gospel that says put off that old inferior identity and put on the beauty of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. we got to make sure that we're getting the gospel right. we gotta be, we got to be saying to people, why be a thief when you could be generous? Why be a racist when you could be an agent of reconciliation and bring healing to a community? Why be a basket of anxieties when you could experience a kind of peace that Christ gives that's independent of all circumstances? we got to make sure that we get the gospel right, that we're not separating the putting off from the, uh, from the putting on. Because when you separate those two things, when you separate... When you separate the putting off from the putting on, it's, it's, like, it's like trying to, cl- you know, those of you who are, who are gardeners will, will get this. It's, it's like trying to clear away ground that's full of weeds without planting something else in its place. What's going to come back? What's going to happen? If you don't put something else in its place, what happens? Well, the weeds just come back, right? I mean, you can't, 
You can't put off without putting on. Okay? Last point I want to make this morning, uh, just by way of overview, and then, as I said, next week we're going to start going into each of these parts, the, the two parts and then the bridge. We'll go into those individually, but just by way of overview. Here's the third thing that I want you to notice, I want to say. Here's the bridge to the first two parts of the gospel method of change. And you see it in verse 23. Paul says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, I want you to listen to this. Here is why secular and religious methods of change are always doomed to fail, but the gospel always works. Here's why. Because there's a supernatural aspect to the gospel method of change. Understand that. There is a supernatural aspect to the gospel method of change. Now, on the one hand, this whole idea of putting off and then putting on, that sounds so easy. easy. It sounds so logical. You just renounce the old and, and you remind yourself of the new. Hear me. Hear me. Okay? That never works without the bridge of being made new in the attitude of your minds. Never works without that bridge. To get from this side to this side, there has to be that bridge. Now, here's why. Imagine, okay, I just want you to imagine for the moment that you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, stop eating steak or you're going to die. And you, you got to eat better. You know, start eating better than, more lean, whatever, than, than steak. And the doctor shows you all of your charts and shows you your cholesterol levels and intellectually, you agree. That's logical. I keep eating this stuff, I'm going to die. I got to stop. I got to change. I got to eat something better. But intellect and logic is not necessarily what drives your decisions about what to eat or anything else, for that matter, is it? It's not just intellect. It's not just logic. You need the information, but that's not all that drives your decisions. Because later that evening, later in the evening, after that doctor appointment, you go to your friend's house for a party. And they're grilling steaks. And they're also grilling vegetables, too. And you go uh, and uh, you smell the steaks. And you hear the sizzle of those steaks. And you go over and you look at those steaks on the grill. And you begin to imagine how that would taste. And your mouth waters, and your knees begin to buckle a little bit. And while intellectually you know it's bad for you and you should eat the vegetables that they're grilling, let me ask you something. Which are you going to eat? The answer to which one you're going to eat depends on whatever image that you have allowed to capture your imagination, right? On the one hand, you can imagine just eating the steak and how good that steak would taste. I want to tell you, if that's all that you think about, if that's all you imagine, I promise you, you will eat the steak. I promise you. On the other hand, if you imagine yourself turning ashen, falling to the ground with a piece of steak in your mouth, with the feeling that there's a 300-pound block, uh, block of cement on your chest, 
and people around you gathering around you and screaming and calling 911 and you start fading out and somebody brings the paddles and kaboom. If you imagine that, if you allow that to capture imagination, you'll probably eat the vegetables, won't you? Right? Depends on which one you've allowed to capture your imagination. Okay. The bridge, the bridge between putting off and putting on is critical. You have to have that. Because what that bridge is, is it's new information about what the world is like and about who's the center of the world, who the subject and the object of life is, which, of course, is Jesus. So it's that new information. Plus, it's renewed imagination that begins to govern your mind. Now, if you're really on top of it, as we were reading these verses, if you're really on top of it, you probably noticed something. You've got to get this. You probably noticed that the verb tenses change in these verses. Did you notice that? On the one hand, you have put off and put on. Those are active verbs, right? On the other hand, you have this little phrase, be made new in the attitude of your minds. What is that? Is that active? No, it's not active. It's passive. Why is it passive? The reason that it's passive is that this new imagination is something that only God can do. There must be supernatural work in your mind that allows you to be governed not only by information, but by an imagination that is other, that is different than the things that you've always known and imagined that governed your mind in the past. Now think about this. If in the past, if your identity was built around uh, the concept or the idea of success, if that's what drove you, let me ask you something. How much time did you spend, and maybe you still do, how much time did you spend fantasizing in your imagination about how great life would be when you succeed? Oh, I'll bet you spent hundreds and thousands of hours fantasizing about that. Or if approval of certain people, if, if that's what drove you, don't worry about that. I can go on without that note being on the floor. If approval of other people is what drove you, how much time did you spend fantasizing about how good life will be when you get their approval. I'll bet you that was hundreds of thousands of hours. Here's my point. Those images are deeply, powerfully reinforced in your imagination. And what Paul is saying is that something supernatural has to happen to free you from those and to give you new images that can govern your behavior in the future. This is all part of what it means to put off and to put on. The only way you can do that is with this bridge. There has to be a supernatural aspect to it, or you will not change. But I want you to understand that while this supernatural uh, reorienting of your mind and your imagination, is su- while it's supernatural and while it's passive, get this, It is not going to happen if you don't put yourself in places where this supernatural work can happen. 
understand, there are no holy zaps to change. You're not going to just sit around one day and all of a sudden you feel change. That is not going to happen. It happens through devotions, through prayer, through worship music, through sermons, through meditating on Scripture. And you say, well, that's, gosh, that's, that's a lot of hard work. I mean, it, there is no change without effort and hard work. I mean, there's just not. I mean, whether Christian or otherwise, no change happens without effort or hard work. I mean, it just doesn't. Unless you're A-Rod, you can inject steroids. But that's another thing. We'll talk about that another day. I, I wanna, I, there is no change without effort or hard work. I, let me just, I'm going to close. And I want to close by giving you an example from my own life. Uh, we'll talk more about this bridge in the weeks to come, but let me just give you an example from my own life about how this works. I want to tie this all together and show you how it works. I have the spiritual gift of self-pity. Uh, I am better at that than anyone I know. I love to feel sorry for myself when things don't go my way. I just love to do it. So putting off, so the process of putting off for me means when I catch myself in self-pity, when I'm, when I'm tempted to do it, and, and can I just tell you, I don't always do this. I, I, I don't always, you just spend a few minutes with my wife. She can tell you, I do not always do this. And if you hear somebody say amen right now, that'll be my wife. I, I don't always do this. But putting off for me means saying, I catch myself and I say, Lord, I'm going to, I, I refuse self-pity. I am not going to indulge myself in, sit, in self-pity right now because I know that you are wise and I know that nothing comes my way in life apart from you. And so I renounce self-pity. That's the putting off, okay? Now, the putting on looks something like this. It's like, Lord, in, in, in place of self-pity, what I want to do right now is I, I want to obey you and I want to turn this moment of self-pity I want to turn this into an opportunity to serve some, someone else uh, so that I don't just sit around and feel sorry for myself. I, want to, I just want to, I want to redeem this opportunity, and, and I want to serve someone. Okay, that's the put-on part. But i got to tell you something. Here's the thing. I don't naturally want to stop feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> I mean, I could catch myself. I could say, yeah, I'm feeling self-pity. But the part about putting on and serving someone else, mm-mm, don't want to. I like feeling sorry for myself. I've done it all my life. It feels good and it feels natural to feel sorry for myself. I like being enveloped in the nurturing bosom of self-pity. It is warm. It's comfortable. It's cozy. It's what I know. I like it. And putting on obedience and servanthood feels like a million miles away from me. It's like there's this huge chasm between putting off and putting on, and I cannot cross that chasm. And I want to tell you that the only way that I've ever learned to get across that chasm is by, you know, and it doesn't happen in the moment. I, I mean, it's by regularly... Before these things happen where I want to do the self-pity thing, it's by regularly putting myself in places where the Spirit of God can renew my mind and my imagination through devotions and through Scripture where I I read and I, I learn about Christ who himself was unjustly and unfairly crucified for my sins. And I read in the Scriptures and I sing. I hear these 
songs by these unbelievably gifted people who can write and, and sing and play, and, and they move me. They move my emotions, and I, and I hear in sermons, and I meditate on these truths. And over time, over time, I begin to notice. It doesn't happen instantly, but I begin to notice this change. I find myself, over time, more captivated by the beauty and the nobility of Jesus' life and what he did on the cross for me. And self-pity no longer seems so noble and so comfortable and so right in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I find myself, oh, it's little, it's incremental, and it's over time, but I find myself more and more and more saying, I want to serve someone else. Not, not because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll go to hell. And not because I'm afraid that God will punish me or something. But because I just want to show Christ's love. By doing for someone else what he did for me. This is being renewed in the attitude of your mind. It takes time. And it's not instant. And I'll be the first to acknowledge it is not always but the change that's happened, that is happening in me, is supernatural. There has to be a supernatural aspect to change. This is the gospel method of change. It's why every other method of change doesn't, it's doomed to fail. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when you apply these things, will work. And here's why it works. It's not just cognitive therapy. It's not just willpower. It's not just behavioral therapy. Although all of those things are involved. The reason that it works is that it's worship. Worship of the living God who died on a cross for my sins and was raised again from the dead. And as we say at City Church, this changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me? And if you, if you find yourself this morning wanting to be changed, you You've tried to change, but you've never been able to change in the past. Things stay the same. If that's where you are, would you just say this morning, would you just say, Lord, I'm open to being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you, in this moment, whatever it is that you want to change, would you take that thing, would you just renounce the old identity that says... Something else was going to give you life. And would you put on the new identity of Jesus Christ that says you can reorient your life around him. He is the subject and the object of life. Would you put on that new identity? If you've never come to a place where you've trusted in Christ, right now would be a great moment to do so. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ where his body was broken and his blood was shed so that your sins, just like mine, which are many, could be forgiven. And then would you, would you just ask the Spirit of God to 
to begin to renew your mind and your imagination. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we believe this morning and we affirm as a church that the cross of Jesus Christ changes everything. And we worship you this morning. And we believe that you can change us. And we open ourselves up now to you doing that. Would you change us? And would you let us as a church be a living testimony in the city of Evansville for what the gospel can do that nothing else can do for how it can change us and change people. Would you do this for your name and for your glory? And it's in your name that we worship and pray.